Jose Nino here, bringing you another wonderful episode of El Nino Speaks. Some of you in my audience who are history buffs may recognize this guest. I'm joined by Thomas DiLorenzo, the author of The Real Lincoln, frequent contributor to the Mises Institute and LouRockwell.com. How are you this evening, Tom? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for having me. Now, before we start debunking some major historical myths surrounding the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. Tell my audience more about yourself. Well, I was a university economics professor for 41 years, recently retired from my university job at Loyola University, and um, the author or co-author of 18 books. My latest is actually called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics, just out last week. And I've written three books on Lincoln. I got interested in uh, economic history. That was one of my uh, research specialties. And the reason I got interested in writing and researching about Lincoln was that uh, I was a hobbyist. I was a sort of a Civil War hobbyist. And I, I didn't never dress up like a soldier or anything like that. But I was, I've read a lot of books about it. I was always fascinated with uh, what would motivated men to do what they did in the Civil War. And I thought, uh, well, what can I say as an economist about Lincoln? So I started doing research about him, and I found out that uh, there was sort of a, a revolution in economic policy that happened during uh, and, and shortly after the Civil War, and that uh, it was always part of Lincoln's agenda. He was almost entirely involved, 100% involved in economic issues for the 25 years or so in politics before he became president, and it didn't make sense to me that he would become president, and that one, that had nothing to do with why he became president, and two, it had nothing to do with uh, what he did when he was president. And so I went to work and did a lot of research, and I ended up writing three books. Uh, The first one was The Real Lincoln. So yes, you've built a strong reputation for putting out work that refutes myths concerning uh, Lincoln, why do you believe such a topic merits serious scholarship? The Lincoln myth, as I call it, is really the, the ideological cornerstone of the American state. And whatever the state does, good or bad, it sort of uh, sits back and, and, and claims to have a, a treasury of virtue. The, the famous novelist Robert Penn Warren, who wrote, wrote All the King's Men, among other many other novels, and, and plays, for that matter. In 1960, uh, wrote a book called The Legacy of the Civil War. And one of the uh, very telling points he made was that uh, the, the Civil War gave the federal government what he called a treasury of virtue. And that meant that whatever the federal government did was virtue of the fact that it was the federal government doing it. And then he says... But in order to believe in this, this treasury of virtue, some people call it American exceptionalism, you have to forget almost everything that is real about Lincoln. (laughs) You have to forget that he was a racist racist. In one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he said, I, as much as any man, want the superior position to belong to the white race. Those are his exact words. Uh, as a definition of white supremacy, if ever there was one. He opposed uh, interracial marriage. He opposed making citizens of uh, of even free blacks. 
He supported the Illinois Constitution that prohibited the immigration of black people into the state. He was a uh, manager of something called the Illinois Colonization Society that used tax dollars to uh, force uh, the small number of free black people who lived there at the time out of the states to deport them. And he did the same thing as president. He was he always was in favor of deportation. They called it colonization, but it was really a deportation as far as that goes. And so uh, that's, you know, among the things that you're not taught in school is that's who, uh, who Lincoln was. And uh, also he was a nightmare for civil liberties in the northern states. He illegally suspended the writ of habeas corpus and had the uh, military mass arrest tens of thousands of northern civilians for simply speaking up and criticizing him or his administration. He essentially uh, redefined treason as criticizing him. And speaking of treason, he committed treason when he invaded the southern states because the Constitution uh, defines treason very specifically in Article 3, Section 3. It it uses the word only. It says only to be defined as levying war upon the United States or giving aid and comfort to their enemies. And the word there is all important here because it means the states were in the plural, the states, not something called the United States government of Washington, D.C., levying war against Virginia, South Carolina, Florida, etc., the states. That's what treason is. And, of course, Lincoln's invasion of the southern states was treason. And, but he redefined it to mean criticism of him in his administration. And he shut down over 300 opposition newspapers and, uh, and imprisoned editors and owners of newspapers in the North, not the South, in the North, as far as that could, confiscated firearms in the border states. And the border states all were allowed to keep their slaves, by the way, because they were part of the Union. He illegally created the state of West Virginia out of Virginia, and ran the Republican Party ran the state of West Virginia. West Virginia was the last slave state to enter the Union, and it was entered the Union in the Lincoln administration. People don't know that. People also don't know that in his first inaugural address, Lincoln supported an amendment to the Constitution known as the Corwin Amendment that had passed the House and the Senate already that would have prohibited the federal government from ever interfering in Southern slavery. He said, I, he said in, that, in the last couple of paragraphs of his inaugural address that he thinks slavery is already constitutional. And then he says, but I have no objection in making it express and irrevocable. Irrevocable. So, he, so as long as you stay in the union and keep paying federal taxes, uh, I will make slavery irrevocable. And these are some of the things you're not taught in school about Abraham Lincoln. Now, you mentioned one point that Lincoln was able to usher in a economic revolution of sorts. What do you mean by that? Lincoln was a Whig politician, W-H-I-G, the old Whig party, for 25 years before he became a Republican. There, There was no Republican party until the early 1850s. His wing of the Whig Party were what today we would call crony capitalists, were champions of corporate welfare. They wanted uh, high protectionist tariffs to to, uh, isolate 
northern manufacturers from competition. They wanted a, a bank run by politicians who would dole out a national bank run by politicians who could dole out uh, cheap credit to the, the politically connected. And they were in favor of what's called what we today would call corporate welfare, taxpayer funded subsidies to corporations to build roads, canals, railroads, things like that. And uh, Alexander Hamilton actually coined the phrase the American system to describe this. But it was actually the old, rotten, corrupt British system that the colonists fought a revolution against. It was called mercantilism in the 18th century. And then uh, after the revolution, Hamilton and the Federalists, his party, decided that it would be pretty, it would be good to be the king. It's a bad idea if you're on the paying end of a rotten, corrupt system. But if you're the money, on the money-collecting end of a rotten, corrupt system, it's a good thing. It's good to be the king, uh, as Mel Brooks said in that movie, uh, History of the World, I think it was part two, where he played the king of France. And then uh, it was Henry Clay who picked up the mantle after uh, he died, after Hamilton died. And, uh, and then when the Whig Party imploded in 1852, it was Lincoln who became the standard bearer of this cabal of uh, politicians who wanted to use government of corporations, by corporations, and, and for the corporate elites in America. Lincoln was a wealthy trial lawyer who was employed by the, all of the major railroads in the Midwest. He rode through the Midwest in a private rail car courtesy of uh, the Illinois Central Railroad, with an entourage of um, Illinois Central uh, executives. In 1857, he was offered the job of general counsel of the New York Central Railroad, which was one of the biggest railroad corporations in the world at the time. He turned it down because he had bigger fish, fish to fry than that, you know, financially speaking. And so when he came in, all of these things failed. From the time of Jefferson on, uh, we had largely free trade. There were some ups and downs, but by the time we get to the late 1850s, we had free trade, very low tariffs of only about 15%, no income tax. Uh, we had no national bank. We had a competitive banking system and almost no federal subsidies to corporations to do anything. And state governments had subsidized corporations to build roads and canals and things but it was such a calamity, a financial calamity, that by that period, every state in the Union had altered its constitution to make it unconstitutional to use tax dollars for corporations for anything. Only Massachusetts had not yet done that by the time we get to the 1850s. And Lincoln and the Republicans gained power, and all of this came into being. We had uh, He raised tariffs 10 times. The average tariff rate went from 15%, 1.5, to over 50%, close to 60% by the time he left office, by the time he died, and it stayed in that range for the next half a century. So this wasn't just a wartime uh, money-raising measure. This was the Republican Party's cornerstone, economic cornerstone. We had the massive subsidies to the transcontinental railroads which ended up in the biggest corruption scandal in history up to that point, the Credit Mobilier scandal during the Grant administration. And, of course, we had the National Currency Acts and the National Banking Acts that nationalized the money supply and imposed taxes on competing currencies 
so that the greenback dollar would be the monopoly money forevermore. And so all of these things that began with Hamilton and president after president, beginning with Jefferson, uh, Madison, Monroe, Andrew Jackson, John Tyler, had all vetoed all of this because it was all corrupt and it was all very similar to the corrupt British system that the Americans had fought a revolution against. But it all came into fruition during the Lincoln administration. And as I said at the beginning, that's what interested me as an economist to write about Lincoln. That was my primary interest. I thought this story had been swept under the rug and, um, as far as that's concerned. So would you say that Lincoln's overall economic and political agenda is the maximum expression of the Hamiltonian system? Oh, yes. There's a famous author and playwright named Edgar Lee Masters who wrote a, a book called Lincoln the Man, one of the best books ever written, published a long, long time ago, the 1930s, I believe, originally. And uh, he called Lincoln the political son of Hamilton, political son of Alexander Hamilton. And, and Hamilton, of course, uh, was a, a big government man. He, he uh, Once the Constitution was ratified, he condemned it. As, he called it a frail and worthless fabric because it put too many constraints on government. He wanted uh, imperial glory. He wanted to start more wars for imperial glory for himself, I guess. And it's ne- never a glory, much glory for the soldiers who die or taxpayers who pay for the wars. But but Hamilton wanted imperial glory. And uh, thank goodness he, uh, he never uh, realized it. For the, yeah, thank goodness for the sake of America at the time anyway. And, uh, and so Lincoln was the political son of Hamilton, and then so was Henry Clay. And Lincoln once said that he got all of his political ideas, everything, from Henry Clay. And, uh, and so who was also a Whig, and he was the, Henry Clay was the, the, the leader of the Whig Party all those years. And he died in the early 1850s. So the American Civil War, or more accurately, the War for Southern Independence, is obviously like a landmark moment in American history. However, the way it's depicted by many court historians leaves many questions unanswered and oftentimes obfuscated as well. What would you say were the biggest precedents established by the North's victory during this conflict? By the North's victory? Well, it was the the death of federalism, you know, the unique uh, American system. It's the one contribution to politics and political philosophy that is really unique to America. And the Swiss adopted a similar system also in the 19th century, and they still have it by and large. But uh, basically, um, uh, all political power was centralized in Washington, D.C. After the war, all during so-called Reconstruction for 12 years after the war, southern states were under military dictatorship run by the Republican Party. And so uh, and the Tenth Amendment was basically dead. That says, uh, you know, there are delegated powers by the Constitution to the central government in Article 1, Section 8. And everything else is left up to the people, respectively, or the states. That became pretty much a dead letter in 1865. So the death of federalism and the centralization of power, and the and the creation of a big government bureaucracy in Washington, 
the internal revenue bureaucracy was created during the Civil War. The money supply was nationalized. The rights of secession and nullification, which everybody believed in at the time of the founding, uh, were destroyed. The first political group to try to secede were New Englanders. They hated Jefferson so much that after Jefferson was elected, uh, the New England Federalists plotted to secede for 14 years. They, they actually held a secession convention in Hartford, Connecticut in 1814, and they ultimately voted against it for, for economic reasons and for political reasons. And they thought, uh, well, I'm not going to have much of a uh, political future in this new country, uh, the majority thought. And so they voted against it. But all during that time, there was nobody really debating whether they had a right to secede. Everyone knew that the union was voluntary. In fact, uh, New York, Rhode Island, and Virginia, in their ratification documents of the Constitution, explicitly reserved the right to reassume the delegated powers. They used the word reassume in the future if this federal government would interfere with their happiness. They used the word happiness. They didn't say it depends on anybody else's permission. They said, we, the state of New York, state of Rhode Island, state of Virginia, are sovereign. We're delegating these powers that, that are ours. We have these powers now, but we're going to delegate them mostly for national defense and foreign policy purposes to this federal government. But if we don't like what the federal government is doing and it interferes with our happiness, we reserve the right to secede. They all said that. And when those three states were admitted to the union, it meant that all the states had the same rights because no one state can have greater constitutional rights than any other state. And so that's why the New England Federalists thought, well, of course, they have a right to secede. It's all a matter of whether it's uh, smart or not so smart to do so. And then also in the 1850s, there was a secession movement in the middle states, Maryland, Delaware, New Jersey, southern Pennsylvania. And they were unhappy with the way things were going, and they were considering either joining a southern confederacy or creating their own country in the middle states. And everybody seemed to hate the New England Yankees, uh, everybody else, that is, who were sort of imperious, and uh, they were sort of the political descendants of the Puritans. They believed they were God's chosen people, and they believed that they had a, a God-given right to order everybody else around and force them with violence, if need be, to live like them, the way they want them to live. So, And that's who the Yankees were. It wasn't all Northerners. It was just this, this sect uh, that were known as the Yankees. Uh, there were a lot of uh, a, a Yank a Northerners who, uh, in fact, um, most of the Northern newspapers at the time, as I cite in my book, The Real Lincoln, editorialized in favor of peaceful secession, let the South go. Yeah, wasn't Lysander a spooner from Massachusetts as well and a big proponent of letting the South go during the Civil War? Yes, Lysander Spooner, the famous uh, libertarian lawyer and, and uh, political philosopher. He wrote a book uh, called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, uh, which is sort of a handbook for how to peacefully end slavery, because Americans don't know that all every other country on, on Earth ended slavery peacefully. It was only in the United States where there was a war, a major war involved in ending slavery. The, the British Empire, the Spanish Empire, the French, the Danes, the Dutch, 
New England, New York, the northern states, Pennsylvania, they all had slaves. They all ended slavery peacefully. There was no war in, in uh, Massachusetts over ending slavery when they when they ended it there. And the you know the slave ships were uh, sailed out of New York, Boston, uh, and Providence and Newport harbors, and slaves were used to build the slave ships in those places. And so they all had slaves, but they found a way to end it peacefully, as all the rest of the world did, except for the Lincoln administration, as far as uh, that's concerned. And Lysander Spooner was infuriated. He hated uh, Lincoln and his administration with a red-hot hatred because he thought that the war was all about money and power, like almost all other wars in in human history. And uh, when they brought slavery in as an issue in the middle of the war, once they were losing— uh, he saw it as hypocritical and a horrible disaster because of all the death that had occurred in the war. You know, the latest research on the, the Civil War deaths says that it may have been as much as 850,000. For 100 and some years, historians said it was 620,000. And even that number is more than all the Americans who died in all other wars combined. World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, everything. Combined does not amount to 620,000, but now the uh, newer research says it may be as much as 850,000, and I personally think it could could have been a million, with more than double that amount of people maimed for life physically and psychologically in the war. And this was at a time when the population of the country was less than one-tenth of what it is now. And so it would be the equivalent of... uh, Eight million, eight or nine million Americans dying in their own country in a, in a civil war today, which is a really horrifying thought to think of it. But that's what we did. That's what happened. Yeah, one thing I noticed about some of the outside observers that praised the North's victory was that you saw Otto von Bismarck and even Karl Marx both praise the uh, Lincoln's victory over the South. And you know, you've got like all sorts of trouble when you have those two agreeing on something with the two of like the largest centralizers uh, in like Western politics of the last like 200 years. Yes, I I wrote in my, in The Real Lincoln, that I quoted um, a historian as saying in in that period of time, the late 19th century, early 20th century, it was Lincoln, Bismarck, and Lenin who did more than any single individuals in their respective countries to create centralized uh, bureaucratic government. They were all different. You know, Lincoln didn't create communism like in Russia, but they, he did more than anybody else to create the centralized bureaucratic leviathan that we all slave under today, along with Bismarck and, uh, and of course, Lenin in Russia. And speaking of Marx, you know, the the Republican Party newspaper of the day was the New York Tribune, edited by Horace Greeley. It was sort of like today you think of uh, the New York Times and the Washington Post as being the Democrat Party paper of, of the, you know, their spokespeople, you know, so to speak. Uh, but the New York Tribune. And for about 10 years prior to the Civil War, Karl Marx was a columnist for the New York Tribune. He wrote on, uh, you know, the European affairs and, and uh, primarily, and then he he wrote uh, Lincoln a personal congratulations letter when Lincoln was reelected, and Lincoln wrote him back a very very touching thank you letter for that. 
And so if you fast forward to the 1930s, the early 1930s, when the Communist Party USA had their big convention, I think it was 1933. If you were to go online and search uh, Communist Party USA convention 1933, you'd probably find this picture. There's a picture on the web of uh, the stage. It had a gigantic stage and a very big crowd. And on, on one side of the stage, there was a gigantic head of Karl Marx. And on the other side of the stage is a gigantic head of Abraham Lincoln. And the, the Communist Party USA used to hold Lincoln-Lenin Day rallies in New York City. And there were there were communist revolutions in Europe in eight, around 1848. And a lot of the people who had participated in them, they failed, came to America and joined Lincoln's army. Some of the officers in his army were officers in these European revolutions in Germany and elsewhere that had failed to go far enough. You know, Bismarck went far enough uh, in centralizing power in, in Berlin. But of course, the communists wanted more power and more centralization than even Bismarck created, but they couldn't get it at the time anyway. And so uh, so they came to America and they thought uh, Lincoln was their man. Now, I want to touch upon the civil liberties violations that you mentioned that took place under Lincoln's regime, because this is like a facet of his regime that's largely omitted in the accepted court history. What were some of the most egregious examples of civil liberties violations that took place throughout the war between the states? Look, I said they had uh, gangs of Republican Party thugs literally destroying printing presses of uh, opposition newspapers, for one thing, and then uh, dragging the editors and owners into prison without due process. The grandson of Francis Scott Key, you know, Francis Scott Key, the man who wrote The Star-Spangled Banner, was a newspaper editor in Baltimore at the time, and he wrote in editorials criticizing the illegal suspension of the writ of habeas corpus by Lincoln. And he was uh, dragged into prison at Fort McHenry, where his grandfather wrote the Star-Spangled Banner, and wasn't charged with a crime, with no due process, couldn't see a lawyer, couldn't call his family, and it was put into this gulag at, uh, under armed guard as a result. And there were hundreds of others like him, literally hundreds, uh, who were put into prison without due process. Lincoln's chief critic in Congress was a member of Congress named from Dayton, Ohio, named Clement Vallandigham. And he was from Akron, Ohio. And he gave these stirring speeches on the floor of the House of Representatives that sounded like Thomas Jefferson came back to life about, not just about the suspending habeas corpus, but he condemned the war for being about money and the centralization of power and not about uh, slavery or anything, any humanitarian issues. And so so one night, he was back home in Akron, and he was running for governor. He was already a member of Congress. 67 armed federal soldiers break into his home in the middle of the night, drag him out of there, and Lincoln deported him to Canada. And he ended up uh, spending the war, war years in Canada and they made a movie about this you know, many years ago. I think it was called Man Without a Country, about Clement Vallandigham. And uh, 
It would be as though uh, President Biden did this to Mitch McConnell, broke into his home and shipped him to, you know, to China or, or someplace. And, or, or, you know, <laughs> pick your example. <laughs> and so that's what he did. And uh, Lincoln actually made a speech saying that the man who stands silent while his government is being discussed is guilty of treason. And I have an old friend who grew up in the Soviet Union, and he told me that this is the way it was in the Soviet Union, that if you were a suspect, if you didn't openly and loudly, literally uh, praise um, the, the dictator of the moment in the Communist Party, you could get in trouble. And, and uh, my friend, the Russian, told me that uh, one of his neighbors almost every day would open her windows and praise the Communist Party or whoever the local politician was. And he asked her, why are you doing this? And she explained to them, well, that's why I'm doing this. I don't want them to suspect that I'm not a supporter and send me off to Siberia or anything like that. And not that Lincoln had plans to send anybody to Siberia, but he did say that. He did say that not just criticizing the war in his government, but not saying anything was treasonous. And of course, that's a big lie. Treason is defined very clearly in the Constitution as levying war upon the states, which is exactly what he was doing. And he, so he was the one, he and all his high command were the ones who were guilty of treason. Now, that's why I, I quote in my book, The Real Lincoln, a biographer of General Sherman who says that had the South won, they would have been justified in, in hanging Lincoln and his high command for war crimes, for waging war against civilians, which they did, you know, waging war against civilians. Even James McPherson, who's sort of the, uh, the gatekeeper of the Lincoln cult, as I call it, to the retired history professor from Princeton, said that at least 50,000 Southern civilians died from the bombings uh, and, and shootings in the war. And that's bound to be a great underestimate. And that had to include a lot of slaves and free blacks as well in the South. Now, I've long argued that when both sides of the political aisle come to agreement about a given political topic, something bad is afoot. Would you say that Lincoln idolatry is what unifies Democrats and Republicans in the present, despite all the political polarization that's taking place? Oh, sure. The, the Both parties have tried to latch on to the mantle of Lincoln and the Communist Party, as I said. They used to hold Lincoln-Lenin Day rallies in New York City. And so, uh, because they, well, there's a book out called The Unpopular Mr. Lincoln by Larry Tagg. And he uses primary sources to document that during his lifetime, Lincoln was by far the most hated and reviled of all American presidents. And he's talking about northern people in the northern states. Of course, you'd expect southerners to hate him. Okay, But after his death, the Republican Party PR machine turned him into a saint, uh, along with the media and the clergy. And uh, there's a Harper's Magazine picture on the web I don't, I don't know how you'd find it. Uh, maybe if you typed in Lincoln Ascending to Heaven, Harper's Magazine, there's an angel with angel's wings ascending to heaven, and the head is Abe Lincoln, and beneath it is an open tomb. So it's like this is the real Jesus Christ, you know, ascending to heaven. 
and things like that happened. Uh, his mother was uh, was you know compared to the Virgin Mary by, by uh, the first the first biography of Lincoln that was ever written, and so they they really went wild with uh, the the deification. And there's even a little book called The Deification of Lincoln, published in the 1940s, that is a very good uh, description of how this happened, how they turned Lincoln into a saint. And he became the image, you know, look at the Lincoln Memorial, his image, and it supposedly is the image of government. And all over the Lincoln Memorial are the fasces, F-A-S-C-E-S, you know, the, the Roman symbol of the Roman Empire a bundle of rods wrapped around with a rope. And uh, in my latest book, it's called The Problem with Lincoln. I've written about how the National Park Service has a, a publication called The True Meaning of the Lincoln Memorial. You can read it online. And they says what it really means, because there's these fasces are all over the place in the Lincoln Memorial, inside and outside. And they stand for power and authority and unlimited submission to the government and the Park Service, which runs the Lincoln Memorial, said it means, you know, in history, people have been beaten or beheaded, failed to obey <laughs> these things. So that's that's what happened with Lincoln. He was deified after the war, and he became he's the symbol, ever since he's been the symbol of American governmental power and authority and centralization, which is why both parties uh, latch on to him. I think it was uh, the late Joseph Sobrin who once said that the, the the Republican Party is the stupid party, the Democrat Party is the evil party, and then whenever they both agree and they do something bipartisan, that just means it's both stupid and evil. That is 100% correct. Yep, I fully agree with Sobrin's assessment. He was definitely a legend. Rest in peace. Now, Material that you've been able to study throughout your career concerning Lincoln, which mainstream academics tend to have works that are critical or at least skeptical of Lincoln? The, the Lincoln cult is, is actually very heavily subsidized by the government. So if, so if you're an academic and you want to get uh, funding for your research, uh, you can't be like me. You can't be a critic. But there are there are a lot of honest scholars out there. Uh, David Donald was a um, Harvard professor for many years, taught at the University of Illinois for many years, and he was considered to be the preeminent Lincoln scholar of the last generation, maybe even two generations ago. He, he wrote a lot in the 1950s. He was writing in the 1960s. And the older generation, you, the older literature, you can find a lot of honest scholarship and you can interpret it the, whatever way you want. There's also a, uh, a man named uh, Edward Dunning, uh, a historian at Columbia University. And uh, he and, and a bunch of his PhD students at Columbia wrote a series of uh, books on about the Civil War and Reconstruction that is just wonderful scholarship that explains what happened and just what happened. And if you want to really learn a lot, that's the Dunning School, it's a school of thought, uh, is good. And then, um, of course, the, the late Shelby Foote, if you want to just read about the war, Lincoln included, the Civil War Trilogy by Shelby Foote. And this all changed, though, beginning in the 1960s, when uh, in one of my writings I quoted Kenneth Stamp, 
who was at one time the president of, I think, the American Historical Association. So he's, uh, I think he was also at Columbia University. He said that the whole story of Lincoln and the Civil War had to be rewritten in the 1960s to support the Johnson administration and the civil rights laws and so forth. And so he came right out there and said, we need to rewrite history. And this is at a time in the 1960s when Americans, academics, were, were ridiculing Soviets for rewriting their history. I remember being taught that in school, that how they, their history is a false history. They rewrote their history to make themselves look wonderful and look great. And, and then and so here are the president of the American Historical Association saying, we need to rewrite, rewrite our history. To, uh, to support a sleazeball politician like Lyndon Johnson. And it's gone downhill ever since then, as far as the, uh, the scholarship. Although there are a lot of uh, scholars uh, in my book, Lincoln Unmasked, I have an appendix in the back that uh, of books that I recommend by a lot of people who are straight shooters like this and who you can read and get, and, and under, get a lot of good understanding from as far as that is concerned. There's Marco Bassani, is an Italian scholar who's written some very good things about Lincoln. Donald Livingston, Clyde Wilson. Uh, there, Livingston is retired from Emory University. Clyde Wilson retired from the University of South Carolina. But they're still working, still writing. They've written a lot of good things. Uh, you can check out the Abbeville Institute website. There's uh, The Abbeville Institute does research and holds educational programs about the South in general, not just Lincoln, but uh, and not just the war either. That you can find, you can find uh, video presentations about Southern music there, Southern literature, and uh, and so forth. But uh, and also Lincoln, of course. And so that's that. That, that would be where I would look uh, along with the appendix to my book, uh, Lincoln Unmasked. Overall. Are you optimistic about the future of Lincoln scholarship and that people will actually learn the uncomfortable truth about his regime? I think the uh, the fact that the country, the government has been taken over by Bolsheviks and, and they prove it to us every single day has really opened the eyes of a lot of Americans and how truly totalitarian their government has all of a sudden become. And it's not just the COVID lockdowns and the mask mandates and all that, all that business, uh, but it's everything. And this, not everything, but you know, the raiding the former president's home and things like that. You know, it's unheard of. Really, the kind of thing in a third world totalitarian socialist dictatorship that you're used to hearing about. It's happening here in America, and and I think uh, people are going to be more more attuned to questioning the official narrative about the treasury of virtue that Abraham Lincoln created by creating this, this holy American empire to replace the holy Roman empire and, uh, and, and the whole story. And of course, that's the story told by the neocons over the years. They, they called it American exceptionalism. We need to invade country after country after country and, and impose our will on them because we are exceptional. And I think the uh, history has proven that to be bunk. And so a lot more people, I think, uh, I'm a bit optimistic, will be uh, questioning this, despite the fact that we have the thought police at the universities uh, will call you a racist and a slavery defender. 
Although even even the left wingers who run the universities now, the the, the Bolsheviks who run the universities, the cultural Marxists, uh, even some of their students have been tearing down Lincoln statues. <laughs> and apparently, from what I've read, uh, they have run across the fact that uh, Lincoln. At one point, uh, there was a, a Sioux Indian uprising because once again, the U.S. government shafted them and uh, took some of their land, promised to pay them for it, and didn't pay. So there was a two-week uh, quote war, and at the end of the war, uh, Lincoln, the Lincoln administration, hanged 38 Indians who just happened to be present at the ending of this two-week battle, and uh, and so it was the biggest mass execution in American history. And apparently some of the uh, social justice snowflakes uh, got wind of this and went and have gone around tearing a few statues down. And I think some of them also have uh, gotten wind of uh, Lincoln's uh, white supremacist speeches, of which I mentioned one. And in my new book, The Problem of Lincoln, I devote a whole chapter to these speeches. And if you want to know who the real Lincoln was, as I said, he was the white supremacist. He wanted to deport all the black people until his dying day. Uh, there's a book called Colonization After Emancipation by Philip Magnus and Sebastian Page, published a few years ago. They went to the British archives and the American archives and found that Lincoln was hard at work up until his, almost his dying day trying to figure out how many boats they're going to need to ship all the black people out of America. And this is, this is after, you know, after emancipation would have occurred. Which which it did after after he died. He was he was dead in April, and emancipation did not occur until January of the following year. There were still slaves in New Jersey until, until January of eighteen sixty six. I've actually seen a lot of uh, black nationalists and separatists as well become much more anti Lincoln too lately. They've mentioned a lot of like what you said about the colonization and his pretty ra- like racialist beliefs as a thing like th- to like rally against. And that's actually like a hilarious thing about this like whole woke culture. It is like an Ouroboros because it just like eats itself. And you've also seen that with Woodrow Wilson too. A lot of these people are calling for like his cancellation due to his questionable like racial beliefs. It's pretty amusing to watch from afar. Yeah, he, he resegregated the military so that they took the statue of him down at Princeton. And when that happened, I, I wrote an article on lourockwell.com. Uh, I think the title was uh, The Next Target for Black Lives Matter. And I listened to all of these racist and white supremacist speeches by, by Lincoln, chapter and verse, <laughs> and just to have a little fun with that. It's since they're on a rampage, not taking down statues uh, because of racist acts, uh, look into Lincoln, I, I said. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know, maybe they ran across it. I don't know. And I, in my book, by the way, in my last book, uh, The Problem with Lincoln, I quote extensively Lerone Bennett Jr., who was the longtime editor of Ebony Magazine, wrote a book called Forced into Glory, Abraham Lincoln's White Dream. And he, and he this is a, very, a distinguished African-American author who wrote chapter and verse about Lincoln's uh, infatuation with uh, deporting all the black people out of the country. And so, and and he had a big following. He was the editor of Ebony for many years. He wrote several other books that were very popular uh, uh, among African-American studies scholars. They know about him. And so there are a lot of people who know these things. 
but uh, they just don't speak up and they don't have the nerve to uh, to do what I've done. Indeed, that's how the cookie crumbles these days, unfortunately, but that's how it goes. Now, I, I believe this is a good place to wind things down. Tom, it's great chatting with you. For all my listeners, where can they keep up with your work and your latest projects? Well, my latest book is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Economics. It's available on Amazon uh, and barnesandnoble.com, booksavillion.com. And uh, I have an Amazon page that lists several of my books. And I'm a columnist on lewrockwell.com. That's L-E-W, a man's name, lewrockwell.com. And I have, I think, several hundred articles in the archives on lewrockwell.com. Fantastic stuff. And to my audience, thank you again for tuning in. And with that, El Nino has spoken.